0: I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of All Things Marketing and Education. This week, I am very excited to be sitting down with Laura Thomas. Laura is an amazing human being, and we're going to talk about that first and foremost. But I am so happy to be able to connect Laura, with all of you that are listening, because she has so much wealth of knowledge in education, higher ed, all of the things. And I love, we're gonna talk about her breadth from being an educator, higher ed, ed tech, all of the things. So Laura currently works at Antioch University, New England. She's the Director of Experience Educators Program, and I'm going to let her tell you what she does and, and what the program is, because it's awesome. And that's really a little bit of what the show is going to be focused on, too. So we're going to be talking about her specific program and all of the different aspects of it. So more to come there. Um, Laura comes from the wonderful world of K-12 education. She taught high school English, she did debate, theater, which I never knew, Laura, have fun, and speech (laughs) for nearly a decade. And today, we're going to be infusing all of that expertise and talking about all things project-based learning, diving into a term called critical skills classroom, which combines PBL, social emotional learning, and 21st century skills. But before we get into all of that, which is very exciting, and I know that not many people are familiar with that term, and I love the blended aspect of all of those things. So we all come from the world of Edutopia, and that's how I know Laura but two of the core tenets of what they really loved and were and still do to this day advocate for is project based learning and and really being socially competent as human beings too. But before we get into that I would be remiss to not mention All of these things about Laura and Laura, if there's things I don't mention that are good for for context, you can add them in later. But Laura has also completed a four year clinical experience as a school librarian in a 60 student K through school. Um, sixth school. I think that's really important as she starts to talk because I never knew that about you and I think that's awesome. Laura has published pieces in Ed Week, the Journal of Staff Development, obviously Edutopia, that's how I know her, <laughs> facilitating <laughs> authentic learning. She wrote that book from Corwin. She serves as a community facilitator, a consulting editor, and she is a blog writer is- itself for Edutopia and she's an ISTE community leader. So she She's, she's one of these people you meet and you just feel like you're a slacker. <laughs> that's pretty much it, right? Um, and, you know, you're already seeing the thread of how I know Laura. And, you know, when we said that magical word, edutopia, you're like, aha, that's how those two know each other. And you would be right. So, <laughs> Laura, I actually went to the Twitters to see how long we've known each other. And it took me a long time to scroll to see what our first tweets to each other were, because we... I thought I remembered I had a conversation with you on Twitter before Edutopia, before all of the in-person stuff, and I found my first tweet mentioning you in 2012. 2012. It's been is that ten years? Oh that's my amazing. gosh! It's amazing. I, <laughs> wow. So in 2012, I had a tweet to you that said "Follow Friday to Critical Skills One," and that's her handle. And we'll. Tell you and put it in the show notes later. But I say she's an inspiring educator that makes helping other educators a priority. Must follow for PBL, EdTech, and Ed Reform. That's what I said in 2012 to you. And I didn't even know you then. Yeah. I wonder what made you. I, I wonder. I mean, I was listening to you on Twitter, yeah. I just thought you were awesome. I was fangirling you, apparently. <laughs> And then in 2013 you tweeted out a picture where we first met in person at Skywalker Ranch with your oh, colleague yeah. Tom. That was where. So, you know, circa 10 years later, we're more awesome and and we're doing cooler things, right? Of course. Absolutely. And so, Laura, this is my moment where I kind of make people a little bit embarrassed because I talk about how much I love you all and Laura, is you are someone I admire so, so much. I want you to know that. I I consider you and your husband, John, and other educator that works for Edutopia. Like, dear friends, I find you like incredible humans. I feel really blessed to have you in my life. And your constant strive for helping education, improving education is is something that I don't have words for. So I just want to share that with you. And I am so... I feel so lucky that you're here sharing your wisdom with me. I get to learn alongside you and people get to learn from you. So I want to welcome you to all things marketing and education. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Wow. Now I'm, I'm like, what do I say after that? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got a lot on your bio. I think I hit the most of it, but I would love to be able to start with you on I find your path in education fascinating and I'm curious like why education? Like did you just wake up when you're in like second grade and say I want to be a teacher? Like how how did no. you get into this world of education? You know, um I come from
1: a long line of teachers. Um, my father and his um, aunt were both teachers. And so I sort of grew up in that education world. But, you know, he was a a PE teacher and a health teacher and a three-sport coach. So um, the life I lived was definitely not the life I ended up experiencing as a teacher. Um, I didn't really decide to go into education until I was in high school. Um, it was always sort of one of those things I thought well, I could do that maybe, you know, maybe I, I, I could also be a movie star or an author or who knows <laughs> I had a lot of ideas back then. Um, but I uh, my sophomore junior year of high school, um, I, was, uh, I had to take a basic speech class. It was a requirement in uh, the state of Missouri, then, where, which is where I grew up, that every student had to take a public speaking class to graduate. And I went into my public speaking, my speech one class, and it was being held in the um, what we would now call the family and consumer sciences kitchen classroom, which was fine. I was not concerned about that. But I walked in and the room was populated with people who terrified me. All people of a completely different social strata. Um, like they, These were just people that public speaking is terrifying, but public speaking in front of these people was never going to happen. So I turned around and went to the counselor's office and said, I need a different class. Um, and luckily, <laughs> the counselor uh, you know, sort of flipped through the book because this was pre-computers, right? Um, and he said, well, there's this class, there's this forensics class. And I was like, I don't care what it is. Just put me in something else. And at the time, I remember thinking forensics, like are we gonna be like cutting up dead bodies? Is that, I'm not really sure I'm down with that, but it's still better than public speaking with the people in that room. Um, And it turned out to be um, forensics like speech and debate and uh, taught by this wonderful woman, Trudy Kinman, who has since retired. Um, Trudy changed everything. Uh, She was the first teacher I had in high school that really seemed to like kids like she liked her students uh, she wasn't afraid to tell us the truth about the impacts of our behavior and our choices she talked to us like a colleague um, but she also had really high expectations for us um, what you know ted sizer would you know later years later i would read um, his words that uh, you know the goal of um is to for uh, how did he say it? I trust you, but I expect much of you, and that was Trudy's stance. Um, and so, and it also was where I found my voice. I um, discovered that I was a pretty good public speaker. I didn't know that before that, and went to some tournaments, and I got involved in some plays, and um, and it it gave me a social life. It gave me. People that I are still some of my closest friends. And I remember having a moment in my senior year when it was time to start applying. And I thought, well, what do I really want to do? And I was actually talking to Trudy about this um, at the time. And she said, well, when you think about the things that matter to you, the things that have been important to you as a person, maybe that's a place to start. And I thought, well, you know, the most important thing to me has been being a part of this speech and debate community it's changed my whole life and that's when i decided that i was gonna major in education and i remember walking to trudy with the catalog from the university of missouri which was where i went and uh a it was just a paper catalog and i was like, trudy what do i what do i major in <laughs> and she flipped through and she found it and she circled it and um and that was that I I went to school and um, never questioned that it was the right decision, have still never questioned that it was the right decision. Um, The students Mm -hmm. that I had in those years are still people that I keep track of and adore. And um, even the students that hated me then, I hear from periodically saying, well, I hated your class, but I use it a lot. And I feel like, well, that's worth something. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's sort of how I got into education. And then my senior year of high school, though, I also, there was another student that was interested in education. Um, Her name was Meredith McLaughlin. And uh, Meredith had very subversive ideas about everything. She was wonderful. Her parents had been uh, big activists in the 60s, and uh, she just sort of came to everything from this activist stance. And Uh, So Meredith and I wanted to do an independent study our senior year in education. We just, we didn't know anything about education really, except what it was to be students. And we wanted to sort of be ready when we got to college. And so we had a little office. Um, That was an unused office space. And we every day we went to this room and we had things that we read. uh, And we talked about big ideas in education. And we imagined the kind of schools that we wanted to have, the schools we wished we'd had, the schools we wanted to teach in. Um, And that was really sort of, that was where I was introduced to the work of Ted Sizer. It was where I was introduced to um, some really... I don't know, subversive ideas for like, it's where I first read teaching as a subversive activity. Um, Yeah, it sort of just set me on my path.
0: That's amazing. And I I love asking that question for people that are so grounded in education, because I, I always make the assumption that you just have this linear path and you chose this, but it felt like it chose you. Some people always say it's a calling, right? Um, that you, ha- but I, I don't know. Do you think that if you didn't have that teacher, would have you jumped into education with that?
1: I, I don't know. I, I think that. Um, no, yeah. yeah, I am. I'm less inclined to believe that it's a calling, and more inclined to believe that. Um, that the the opportunities to do your life's work present themselves to you but the circumstances under which you do mm-hmm. that work are very variable based on um you know the people that are around you and and the circumstances of your life so had i not had that class um had i not connected with that person i don't know i don't know yeah um, I might not be in education. It's hard to imagine doing anything else, but...
0: I know, because you've also, beyond teaching so many various topics and being involved on the brand side, and then now in the world of higher education, it, it's really cool to see your career progress and, and how you approach everything with like a passionate learner's mindset, too. And, and we're going to get into that. Why don't we jump right into critical skills classroom because I know it's something that you were very passionate about and when you talked to me about it I was like wow this is cool this exists and like it, it integrates the like some of my favorite core concepts together so mm-hmm. what is it and if am I if I'm an educator how can I get started and and why do you think it's fundamentally different from other things that we've had in education
1: well you know it's There are a lot of different ways that people describe critical skills or the critical skills classroom. Um, And one of the things that we try to be really careful about when we talk about critical skills is um, defining what it's not. Because this is one of the things that I think makes it very unique. It is not a model. It's not an instructional model. It's not a school change model. It's not a... It's not a product. (laughs) Um, What it is, is a stance. It's an approach um, to classroom practice. And it combines, as you said, um, PBL, though we use problem-based learning. Mm. uh, So PBL, um, SEL, Externally Imposed Standards, uh, we call it, uh, we we focus on the, Collaborative learning community as a really huge piece of this, and then also experiential learning. So SEL sort of fits under the collaborative learning community. It also fits under our um, learning standards uh, focus. So we call it the four pillars or the four broad ideas that underpin critical skills. The whole thing came about in the 80s. Which people say, hey, "How could it possibly still be relevant?" It was, you know, created in the 80s in response to a nation at risk, which a lot of people don't remember. A nation at risk, um, but you know, it was one of those "the sky is falling" education reports that comes out every so many years. And in response, a, uh, a group of business leaders and a group of educators met separately and said, "What do we want kids to know, do, and be like?" And, you know, being New Hampshire, live free or die, right? All education is locally controlled or generally locally controlled. Um, and there at that time was a lot of respect. And I think still a lot of respect for the work of local schools, and local educators. So when it came to the content piece, math, reading, science, whatever, um, the these two groups of people said, you know, we trust that these standards exist. This curriculum exists. This is all good. Then they focused on the stuff we really want kids to know, and that's where we came with the, what we call the critical skills and the fundamental dispositions, which are the same lists that you've seen over and over and over again since then. You know that. 21st century skills, or if you go into any school right now and you'll see habits of a learner or um, our shared virtues or whatever it is, there's gonna be this list and it's gonna say things like communication, collaboration, problem solving, organization, self-management. You know, it's this same list or variations on that list. So then knowing that we had this list, the educators, said, how do we do this in a way that doesn't make it yet another thing to do? Because we don't have time for another thing to do. And this was in the 80s. We don't have another thing to have time. Now we really don't have time. So what they did was uh, set about creating an approach that embedded the intentional teaching of each of these skills and dispositions in the context of experiential problem-based uh, lessons, experiences. And the great thing about it is that it was teacher created and it continues to be teacher created. And as we continue to learn more and more about how people learn and what makes learning effective and what keeps students engaged, we just keep discovering that that this works. Um, and as times have changed as the needs of learners have evolved as different places have different contexts Um, the the model flexes it's not a model the approach flexes with that uh, because it's not a plug and play thing it's a set of ideas it's a stance and then every teacher does it a little differently so if i walked into 10 different critical skills teachers classrooms there would be some basic things i would see that are the same but the specific ways they approach it could be wildly different. And they're all doing it right. That's the other thing, we don't get really into right. There's just the way that you do it that works for you. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the basic, you know, the basic idea of it is these four broad ideas. And uh, then we, you know, there's, we have other ways that we slice it. There are nine characteristics, there are, the things that we expect teachers to do, the things that we might see students doing. But in reality, um, you know, those can be very different depending on context.
0: So that makes sense from like a framework perspective of like what's included, but I'm also trying to figure out logistically, like how do I get started? Who Who is it like best for in terms of grade level And, like, my biggest wonder is what type of educator gravitates towards this? Like, is there a common problem? They're, like, student engagement or actually becoming uh, a a well-rounded human that has all of these critical skills. Like, what's their problem they're seeking? And, like, what is the general grade level? And then how do they even get started? Because it it sounds too good to be true. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's a little bit
1: yeah, it does. It's it's um, it is it is a big thing, right? It's a um, it's a lot uh, to take in all at once. And so typically so the typical teacher is all kinds of teachers, um, though we we have found that um, more experienced teachers are in a better place to to um, sort of get their arms around this. So folks who've been in the classroom for a few years, a couple years, I think three years is what I would normally say, but we've definitely had folks who've come in, you know, even in their initial prep, have taken part in uh, one of the events or one of the institutes and they've done great. A lot of it depends on the kind of schools you came up in um, and your comfort with these different kinds of Um, instructional approaches because this is very learner-centered, it also um, requires the teacher to accept that as an educator, as a teacher in a classroom, we're also co-learners. So we're learning in front of the kids, we're learning with the kids, and what we're learning is the kids and also how to teach in this different way. So the kinds of teachers that typically um, jump into this are the teachers who can get on board with that idea, the teachers who are open to the idea that they're constantly evolving and changing and learning anyway. Um, We've had everything from pre-K all the way up to graduate school. We've had folks who work in um, education adjacent fields like zoo educators and museum educators and, um, you know, Trainers, um, you know, corporate trainers. We've had all kinds of folks do this, um, mostly because they want to get out of the, um, oh, I'm going to read PowerPoint slides to you, uh, approach to their work. And so typically they start in a couple different ways. They either um, come to one of the immersions, one of the institutes, um, which we run those all over the place. You know, over the years we've had from... 200 institutes in a year to three, depending on what's going on in the world. Um, The institutes are typically five days, um, though sometimes they're two sets of three days. You know, we do them in schools sometimes, so we do them based on the schools' needs and structures. Um, And so that's really where we start. The the it is an immersion. You know, we we teach the model by living the models. So folks come in and over the time that they're in the Um, in the course or in the experience, they live in a critical skills classroom. So we start by intentionally building community and talking about what it means to build community. We uh, get very clear on our definitions of um, quality, quality conversation, quality audience, quality work, Um, Not that, and this isn't what we give to them, it's what we create as a community in terms of our definitions. And those are also ways that we build community, right? Because nothing builds community like meaningful work. And then we start engaging in what we call challenges. And now I see that the the word challenge is sort of used in a lot of different Mm contexts, but the critical skills challenge has been the uh, foundational instructional practice in the critical skills classroom forever. Um, and it is a, a problem that we give folks to solve to solve and we feel like the problem is a little bit more impactful than the project as the frame though I know it's interesting depending on who you talk to some folks say that the that problem-based learning is a subset of project-based learnings and other folks flip it I don't really I don't think it Matters that much. I don't. That's why we just say PBL because it doesn't matter what the P is. Um, we we just want you to get engaged in meaningful work with your classmates um, or with your colleagues. And so the um, we we give folks a problem to solve, and. The the challenge they do that you know, it's those get increasingly messy over the course of the immersion, so that they mirror the experience of a year in their classroom. So over five days, we basically mirror a year, hmm. and um, so there's and there, we keep stepping back and forth. So in you know we'll do a thing where the participants are challenged yeah they're doing the challenge and the facilitators are behaving as the teachers so it's not play acting we're doing meaningful work together and then after that particular challenge is done we step back and we talk about the moves that everybody made and we do that we model the reflection and the assessment piece and then we step back and talk about that so it gets a little meta yeah and then We move on to the next piece. The visual that we use, um, if you know those uh, hostess cupcakes that have the loops on the top, that is how we look, that's how we consider um, our linked challenges. So each challenge is a loop. And then the space between the loops is uh, what we call reflect and connect. It's the space where we look back on what we did and then frame up what's coming next. And build on what we just did in order to better prepare for what we co- what comes next. So that's all the lived experience and the immersion, um, and that's that's where most people begin, I think.
0: Yeah, and just hearing you talk is you kind of you have to go all in for a big change like this. This isn't just something that you can take off a binder, and that's why when you're using these terms and. It, for some of you that are maybe new to the world of education or ed tech you know we have things like SEL, social and emotional learning project-based learning pbl or problem-based learning now but like all of those even irrespective of of integrating them thoughtfully like you're thinking of in the critical skills classroom they take a mind shift and they take constant practice over time. And I love how you talk about, you know, you, you go and you think about the year and you practice and you reflect and sure, for all of you educators like exhausted right now listening to this, this does take time. But oh, if you yeah. think about your career, like what are the things you're most proud of and how does it fundamentally shift your relationship with students and learning, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we this is not a plug and play thing. You know, we say that a lot. Um, the the model that or the example we use is to talk about the, a big box of Legos. Um, you know, you can get the set of Legos that uh, you buy at the store and it's in a box and there's a picture on the front and there's instructions and you build the thing on the box. And then that's awesome. And then there's the big tub of Legos that you get from your cousin. That's a whole bunch of Legos. And there's also probably some connects and some Hot Wheels cars and half of three Barbies and some Lincoln logs and um, Tinker toys. And they're all thrown in there together. And you open that up. And if you know how to use all those tools, you build really cool stuff. So we are more the big box of Legos from your cousin um, than we are the box with the picture on the front. Um, But we also recognize that if somebody just gives you a big box of Legos or that, you know, that cousin box, and you don't know what any of those things are or how to use them, you're, you're not gonna be able to use them it's going to take you longer to learn how to use them creatively to make the thing you envision in your head. And so we try to be really clear that there are novice, um, novice, intermediate and, um, advanced levels. In, in all of this work. So, when we look at these nine characteristics, like students frequently work as a team within a collaborative learning environment, well, we're very clear that those are going to look different at um, a beginner level, at a novice level, than they are at an expert level or at an intermediate level. And so, we articulate that um, in our materials right up front that, you know, as a beginner, this is what you should expect to see. And when we say beginner or novice, we don't mean like the first six weeks that we do. you do this. Like you're, you're a novice at this for a while. And for taking small steps is everything. You know, if you take a, a whole bunch of small steps, you go a long way. And a, a career as an educator is a long time. So you have a lot of time to evolve and you're going to get better at it and your kids are going to get better or your learners are going to get better at it. And over time and with experience, you'll be able to do things that are more complicated. I think one of the things that teachers really struggle with is that they see um, videos and uh, they see classroom examples that are amazing. Amazing teachers doing amazing things, and they think I want to do that. And so they try to jump in right there. Well, they're not ready, and their kids aren't ready, and it doesn't go well. And they decide, Well, my kids can't do this, or um, I can't do this. This is not, this, does, this doesn't work for me. I tried that PBL thing once and it didn't work, mm-hmm. and then and they'll never do it again. And so, what, what we try to be really clear with is that in the same way that you would never let your kids try something once, fail, and then never go back to it, you can't either. You're engaged in an experiential learning process. So when we, when we look at those loops, they have actually three levels to them. There's the student content piece, the student skill disposition piece, and then the teacher piece. And so alongside the students, while they're learning academic content, skills and dispositions, the teacher is learning how to teach this way. And your kids are gonna get better with their content and they're gonna get better with the skills and dispositions. And you're gonna get better at designing these kinds of challenges. You're gonna get a better feel for it, just like with any tool, but it's not overnight. Um, It's also really exciting really rewarding. And once you get your feet under it, feet under yourself with it, um, it, I don't know, it's not as exhausting. You don't fight the classroom management battles. Um, you don't, um, you know, have kids falling asleep in class. You don't have the, um, the lack of engagement.
0: Yeah. And that's why I asked the question around challenges, because sometimes When you're so underwater as an educator, you've got these things. You're like, okay, I have student engagement problems. Okay. You know, you have fundamental, like, houses on fire right now problems. Yep. But I think you talking so eloquently about what it is it like immerses all of us into a different way a different approach and almost likens to what your conversations were with your colleague of like what if we could teach like what what would be the best way and we all as educators come in going gosh what is the best way and and somewhere along the way all of these bureaucratic things you have to do all these things get stuck and it's a great moment to pause and reflect on am i proud of what i'm doing what can i do to work within the system yeah right? and that that's what inspires me and on the ed tech side for all of you that are not educators listening and are marketing towards educators i want you to take away just all of the concept that's concepts that laura is talking about how intentional she's thinking about reflection and moving forward and how hard the work is but like you said at the end it becomes this beautiful well-oiled machine or this dance of just giving and taking and, and having that educator be a learner and if you're an ed tech company how does my product fit in this did i even understand all these terms it's really important that you listen to educators and understand the evolution and the intention of the educators practice
1: yeah and that's one of the things i've really liked about the process i guess of the ongoing process of um the evolution of critical skills because it I've definitely had experiences as a teacher where I went to a training and they gave me a book and, um, you know, I had two days of training on a thing and then I went back and I was supposed to do it. And other teachers went to the training five years later, and it was the same book and the same everything. And they came back and, and it was, it was even the same edition. It hadn't changed. They literally just pulled another book out of the box. All of our materials, Um, are teacher-generated there. The the model itself or the approach itself um, is teacher-informed. All the folks that I work with are practicing classroom teachers. So we come together periodically and talk about how is this working? What are you creating? What new challenges? What new tools? What new processes? How is this working in your current context, especially you know, pre-COVID, into COVID, now that we're sort of COVID phase two, I'm not going to call it post-COVID, but, you know, we're sort of in this other land where we're trying to live with it. Um, all of these things are having huge impacts. And, and we talk about that, and we that informs our training. So when you look at um, the materials that we create, it's all chart pack and markers pretty much, Um, and then pictures of chart, pack, and markers, because we know that our teachers don't all have access to the same technology. Some of them don't have access to much much tech at all. Mm -hmm. And so we know that teachers who have the technology available to them, the teachers who are facile with the tech, will figure out how to use the tech available to them to replicate what we've done with chart, pack, and markers. But at the very least, everybody has access to something to write on on and something to write with. Even if it's an overhead projector, they've got something or a chalkboard and chalk. And we really respect the ways that teachers modify this to to fit their own context. And we just ask that they feed that back in so that it can inform practice in the future. because none of this makes any sense if it doesn't work for teachers.
0: Yeah. No point to it. And I know that we can talk a lot about the critical skills classroom. I think that listeners might have a lot of questions, too, because you piqued their curiosity. Oh, God, right. there's, there's a lot. There's amazing things and probably re, re, very well thought out. And the guidance that you have provided even just a little bit is super helpful. I for those of you that want to go to the show notes, we'll be putting in some information about the critical skills classroom Laura, um, if there's any resources that, you know, can give them a, get their feet wet or be able to even just say, can I do this little? I know it's a bigger mind shift, but if there's little things that can introduce them into what the difference is, um send them my way. I can put them in the show notes as well. Um, I would love to be able to shift to another area of your expertise. And I was fascinated that you've always been a person to me around social justice and equity, but I didn't know where it came from. And I started reading your bio. I'm like, Oh, you, that was your primary area of study. (laughs) You know, Yeah, one of your areas, and then you, particularly in rural schools, and I know you are never not shy to speak up for what you think is right in your opinion on things. And and I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit of wherever you want to talk about of where social justice and equity is in, right now within K-12. I know that's a gigantic question, but is there something that comes to mind? You're like, you know, I really do wanna talk about this or this. There's a lot of weaponization happening in terms in education. I, I don't even know where to start, but I think sometimes people are so scared to talk about these things that we never talk about them. And then the louder voices that aren't afraid take over. Mm-hmm. Right. And I hate that, too. So yeah. I'm just going to throw that bomb at you. <laughs> and You can decide where you want to go. Well, you know, it's um,
1: it's interesting because um, a few years ago I did um, a presentation at ISTE. Um, well, wh- one year I did a presentation called Becoming Badass. That was about um, this was pre the Badass Teachers Association. But um, that was just about um Learning how to not be afraid as a classroom teacher, because I feel like so many of the things that we do are driven by um, fear to some degree, or um, a lot of teachers have an imposter complex. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to diagnose anybody, but I know just from talking to teachers, there are so many teachers who think they aren't as good as they are. Um, they really believe that they they don't want anybody to know what they're doing because they don't think they're doing a very good job when in reality they're doing an amazing job. Um, And then the following year, I did a presentation called Becoming Badass Leadership Without Fear that really dug into that idea around fear and how it impacts the decisions that we make. um, Particularly, around resistance. And so when I look at social justice and education, uh, it's awfully hard to talk about social justice and education and not tap into this idea of resistance. When I say resistance, I'm talking about the kind of toxic, emotional, visceral, knee jerk, no way in hell kind of response that we get from certain quarters when an idea I, I, an idea gets to a certain point, right? it It sort of catches the zeitgeist, It becomes really popular. And just about the moment that it peaks, um, somebody decides that this thing, this new thing, must be the embodiment of everything that they're afraid of. And so then, as you've said, they weaponize it. Um, And suddenly this thing that was really just about helping kids, just about helping families or communities or educators, just about keeping people emotionally safe, becomes something we're afraid to talk about. And that all lives in fear. So one of the things that I I encourage folks to consider um, as they are... uh, experiencing new ideas is that the brain trends to the negative, right? That, um, when we are presented with anything new, our brains have evolutionarily, um, been designed to view new as a threat, which was really helpful back when, you know, something new could eat us. So it was a good thing that it frightened us and we ran away, but we are past the saber tooth tiger stage you know, as a species. And so to continue to let our fear be the thing that steps forward first when approached with a new idea, um, it, it's, it's not a great way to live your life. And I see it in classroom teachers as well. I see it in administrators, in families, in communities. Um, a new idea comes up and people think, no, it's not what I experienced. No, it can't possibly be good. Um, and as a leader, or as an educator, if I can figure out really what people are afraid of and I can address that fear, then I can help the part of the brain, that that old part of the brain that is so um, reactive. I can help it calm. And then the part of my brain that can learn and predict and uh, synthesize uh, different ideas that part can come online and I can begin to engage with this new idea. As long as I'm afraid, I can't engage with it. And there are a lot of folks who live their lives completely bathed in that fear. I also recently read something about um, brains getting addicted actually to um, adrenaline and cortisol. I I have no idea if this is actually scientifically true, but it was an interesting premise that um, anger, and stress and fear can actually trigger a hormonal response that the brain becomes addicted to, and so then we seek out new things to be angry at because we're jonesing for a fix, for lack of a better phrase. So I, I think that when we talk about any any of these ideas, whether it's a pedagogical change, whether it's a, a you know even changing a school's mascot, um, the resistance that comes from that. You know, it's fear. There's a fear in there. And I think for a lot of folks, the fear is I've done harm to people, and that's not how I view myself. I'm not a person who hurts other people. And so, if this thing I've done my whole life was actually hurting people, does that make me not a good person? Well, the idea that I'm not a good person is terrifying, it's terrifying to the point that I will reject it. And it's terrifying, which then triggers the fear response. And then you see how that spirals,
0: right? So it's just exhausting, it is. is what it is, too. It is. And I, I appreciate your kind of thinking about it on a higher level, too, of like what's truly happening and what you've seen the patterns over time and over time. I just in the morning was scrolling through Facebook, listening to some educators and one educator from Florida, she showed a picture of her entire elementary school library. It was beautiful, right? And it took her 20 years to build it up. And it was these great different books from all different genres, picture books, more advanced books. And she said she's now required to inventory them all to make sure that they do not have anything subversive or something that might subject young minds in a different way. And she said, do you know how long that would take me? And I am just utterly exhausted. And what happens with fear is I feel like there's always someone on the short end of the stick and there's somebody always that gets disempowered. And if I were there, I'd be like, are you kidding me? You don't trust me from somebody who is a professional with decades of experience. Like this is insulting. And I retreat and maybe just want to get away like that's where we're seeing teacher burnout we're seeing teachers just leaving like at the point where you don't even have words you just leave yeah
1: Yeah. it's exhausting and no one can blame anybody for protecting themselves um, emotionally from a job that's toxic so I you know I get it and while on one hand I can I can try to come into those conversations with as much grace as I can possibly carry to try to understand the fear on the other side of that. Like you said, there's power, there's a power imbalance there. Um, and a power imbalance is one of the um, indicators of a bullying situation. And we'd never encourage someone to stay in a bullying situation if they could get out of it. Um, so there's some of this that, you know, it's not about fear, it's about control. and if if we dig into it and we try to understand the fear and we can't we can't seem to ameliorate the thing that people are afraid of, then it's possible it's power thing and we just have to go. Um, and I, you know, I've I've been I've quit jobs, I've been fired from jobs, um, and I can say with absolute certainty that uh, when I made a decision either to not take a position or to leave a position. Um, because it no longer matched who I wanted to be as an educator or a human being, um, I always walked into something better. Mm. And um, I think knowing who you are, what you believe in, um, and and where your lines are is incredibly important for teachers right now. And also knowing what you're willing to give on. Um you know, when it comes to the whole debate about books, I mean, I was a librarian. I, I'm a I'm a book person. I love my books, um, and that would for me, that would be a moment that I would have to. I think I would have to leave, but I can't know because I'm not in that position. And I also know that I'm very lucky to have good health insurance, and I'm very lucky to have a roof over my head and to not be living paycheck to paycheck. So I'm not going to judge anybody for what choices they make um, in those situations. But my heart goes out to folks who have to keep going back to a job that is eating them alive because they have no other choice. Um, I I think we have to do better by our teachers so that we can do better by our students. Um,
0: But I'm not sure how. And and as we're talking Right now, this is is still kind of back to school-ish. But I think there is a huge myth that educators come into back to school bright-eyed, cheery-eyed, fully refreshed. And when the fact of the matter is, educator burnout is always going to be whatever we thought was an all-time high. It's always going to be moving the needle, unfortunately. Our educators have gone through the hardest, most challenging times of their lives for the last two and a half years, come back to this world that sometimes people would just say, oh, you know, things are back to normal, quote unquote, and they're not back to normal. Educators are leaving in bigger numbers than they ever have before. And there's only so much educators can take. So I'm wondering, Laura, like you've already spoken directly to educators around what they need to do to, in their heart to feel ethically and morally and, and like have those boundaries but is there anything you want to say to them knowing that there's some educators listening that are, are in it they're in the thick of it
1: oh yeah you know uh bless you <laughs> um and that's to the teachers who are in the thick of it and also the teachers who've chosen to leave um you know everybody all educators right now deserve thanks and praise, even the ones who have had to step out because they can't right now. Um, I, but for the ones who are in the classroom right now, I think um, the biggest thing is to take something off your plate, take as much off your plate as you can. Um, we talk some about, you know, circle of concern and circle of influence um, in our uh, graduate programs at Antioch. And it is very tempting as a human being, and particularly as an educator, to spend a lot of energy on things that you can't control, but that you care about. So if that's one circle, right, the things that I can control are the things I care about. And this is the circle is the things that I can control. If I turn those into a Venn diagram, my work is in the intersection. If I spend all my energy on things I care about, but can't control, I burn out. If I spend all my energy on things that I can can control, but aren't really important, then I become officious and difficult to be around. And and I'm not really going to like how that, what that does to me, you know, energetically. But if I can stay focused on the things that live in that intersection, the confluence of care and control, then I have a set of work that I can actually do and that I can, um, that i can be um effective with i I can feel a sense of accomplishment but that overlap has to be right now teeny it needs to be the smallest slice that it can possibly be and um every time someone you know no is a complete sentence so if someone comes to you with a great idea um, or a really innovative whatever it is, and it does not feel like it's going to feed you, um, then no, no thank you, not right now. Um, because an idea either feeds you or it feeds off you. And you don't, we don't need anybody nibbling around the edges of our teachers right now. So keep it small, smaller, is smaller than that. <laughs>
0: And for those of you not seeing in video, he's showing how small it is. Um, Laura, I want to say that you should do a keynote about this. You've given me goosebumps. I I think more educators need need to hear it um, because... It it feels selfish to say yes to yourself and no. And like, we need to all think about if we say yes now, does that prohibit me from being here a year later or six months later? (sighs) So it's a long game, all of this, right? And sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. But that's also
1: because education is a feminine pr- profession. And I think it's really hard to because so many of the folks who are in education right now are wearing so many hats, right? They're teachers and they're parents and they're caregivers for their own parents, potentially. They have a second job. Um, you know, they have a lot going on in their lives. And because it's a feminine pr- profession. Education has always been considered women's work. Um and I know that there are lots of men and non-binary folks who are in this field and awesome. But culturally it has been the work of unmarried women. And the expectation was supposed to be that your work, you know, teaching became everything. You know, it's a we're in it for the outcome, not the income, which is absolute garbage. I hate it. I hate it. It's a perfect it's like a candle. It you know, it consumes itself to shine a light for the- no, do not consume yourself. Um it is and and there's some there's some real internalized misogyny in that because it this idea that as Educators were supposed to also buy into this idea, this ideal of the feminine that sacrifices everything for the care of others, um, and that that's toxic. That's a toxic thing that we have to we have to start pulling out. And the only way to pull it out, like any toxic energy, is to name it and to um, and to refuse to engage with it. But to name it in the same way that we name other injustices. So if somebody tells you to do it for the kids. It is totally appropriate and reasonable to say, I love my kids, I adore my work, and I will do that for an extra $50 an hour. Or, no, thank you, I, I am not going to do that. And those are all complete sentences. You don't let yourself get guilted into doing things that don't serve you. You count.
0: Yes. And... I was recently talking to some ed tech startups about things not to say things that are triggering to educators and one of the phrases i used is blatant heroism of educators like you are a hero and it's not that it isn't true and that we don't overly appreciate educators because what they do is nothing short of heroic every day but it feels like the way you were talking and sometimes i can't explain the nuance of it but it justifies making sure they say yes and that they have to be a superhero every single day just to get through the mountain of extra things that they're required to, quote-unquote, required to do, right? And so we don't we don't need our educators to be heroes. We need them to be human beings that want to come back every day refreshed and appreciated and supported. And there's so much nuance. And when ed tech folk, when you're talking to educators and thinking about that, know that there is isn't no, There's a black and white answer. There's all sorts of nuance in between. And if I were you, I would never choose to segment or trigger educators in such a challenging moment. And please rewind over and over again what Laura just said around educators, because it's hard. (laughs) It's a hard time. It is. And I appreciate your appreciation for educators and knowing there's there's so much navigation that has to occur right now and I know that we can talk about this forever but we are unfortunately out of time I I want to have you back and just talk about all the controversial things in education and we can turn into our badass selves and, (laughs) and empower other educators to do the same and not feel guilty as well and that's really important but Laura I would like to end this podcast specifically around inspiration and hope. And in all of these challenging times that we have every day, you are faced with lots of challenges in your role now, m- your multi-role within Antioch, Edutopia, all of the things. When you feel completely drained, <laughs> what helps you kind of replenish and say, I got this, I'm next day is a new day? <laughs>
1: um, my garden. I actually, um, I grew up um, in a very agricultural world in you know, Northwest Missouri. My family had a farm and um, <clears throat> I grew up, you know, sort of surrounded by living things um, and tending and care of living things. And this year I um, had a, a spot of ground that opened up. Um, we had some trees there. The trees died. We pulled them out. Suddenly there was this space with no grass, no anything. Um, and I, I planted sunflowers and then i planted other flowers and then i planted other things and then well i guess i need a bird bath out there because you know i've got to have a water source and um and it is this summer it has just been this amazing every morning i'm out there for 15 20 minutes to an hour to two hours depending on how much attention i'm paying to how long i've been out there um and it just feeds me um it's just it's just Wonderful. Um, And then the other thing, um, yoga with Adrian. (laughs) I've become, um, in the last, since the pandemic started, um, it's been a daily practice and that has been huge. Just that idea of reconnecting to myself and my breath. um, I I found those to be very, very nourishing. Um, So those,
0: those are the two big ones right now. Great, and you are going to have to show me a picture of your garden. I'm fairly curious on how it looks, and that all sounds amazing. It's all over my Instagram. Okay, okay. Well, Laura, for those of the people that are listening that want to talk to you more, continue the conversation. How can they get in touch with you?
1: Uh, Probably the easiest way is through uh, social media, Twitter or uh, Instagram. I'm at Critical Skills One. I'm also very accessible through Antioch. Um, I, if you go to the Antioch University website and just search on my name, I'll come right up. Um, you can also find me through um, Edutopia. Uh, you know, you can contact me um, through my profile on Edutopia, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I'm easy to get a hold of, uh, and I'm always happy to talk more about any of these ideas. There, you know, this is this is my life's work, um, and uh, I, I want it to mean
0: something. So. Mm-hmm. We thank you for it. Like it's a, it's where we started out in this conversation is your evolution through education. And it, it, I knew this, but the way you talked about it is you let your gut and your passion guide you to where you feel like you can make the most difference. And it, yeah. it truly shines through. So I thank you for joining us. I thank you for sharing your passion and your wisdom with us. For all of you that are listening and want resources of the things that Laura mentioned, and we'll also highlight the top points and, and give you some really nice quick skims of the show notes. It is going to be accessible at Leone Consulting Group. That's two G's, Leone Consulting Group.com backslash 32. So 32. And you can get all the good resources there. And thank you all for spending so much time and learning alongside us. We will see you next time on all things marketing and education. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends. So please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.